everybody, it's Kate. Welcome back to the Voice Above podcast. Today, I will be talking to Dr. Shanna Gadarian about how politics and polarization have affected America's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Gadarian is a renowned expert on American politics and political psychology and a professor at Syracuse University in New York. Back before the pandemic, in 2015, Dr. Gadarian released a book with Dr. Bethany Albertson from the University of Austin, Texas, called Anxious Politics, Democratic Citizenship in a Threatening World, which talks about political attitudes and partisanship in the U.S. and how anxiety affects public opinion on policy issues like public health crises. Dr. Gadarian is currently co-authoring a book with Dr. Sarah Wallace Goodman from the University of California, Irvine, and Dr. Thomas Papinski from Cornell University, called Pandemic Politics, How COVID-19 Exposed the Depth of American Polarization. Dr. Gadarian, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. When I was reading your 2015 book, Anxious Politics, you really emphasize the importance of emotion and anxiety in politics in times of uncertainty. You mentioned that crises make anxious citizens look for ways to cope with threats. To cope, you say that people are more likely to trust their government, but you point out that this can leave them open to manipulation by those in power, and that anxiety can lead people to support potentially undemocratic policies that deny rights in the name of safety. You say uncertain times can lead people to seek information to reduce their anxiety. So I was really amazed when I read this. Your book from six years ago seemed to explain what I was seeing during COVID. Republicans have trusted their news sources and government representatives that have said that COVID-19 is no big deal and that vaccines and masks are fake news. Democrats, on the other hand, have done the same thing, looking to their news sources and government representatives and supporting policies like travel restrictions and vaccine and mask mandates that could be seen as undemocratic. When people have looked for information to lessen their anxiety about COVID, do you think media framing has impacted whether citizens trust politicians across the aisle? Uh, wow. So that's a big introduction and a big question. So I want to just, um, you know, sometimes when I think about the 2015 book and what it tells us about the pandemic, I think I'm a little bit less optimistic that, than you are that what we wrote in 2015 can explain the pandemic. And part of that is exactly for the reasons you stated. So one of the arguments that we make in the anxious politics is that anxiety, because it is uncertain, um, one of the kind of theories that we rely on suggests that in times of uncertainty and people feeling anxious, what they do is they seek out information. And that information is not, what we find in the book is it's not balanced. People pay attention to that which is most threatening. They tend to agree with that information. It weighs more heavily in their, um, in their decision-making. And if that were the case, then we should have seen people who are concerned about COVID early on being the ones who seek out more information and paying attention to it and more likely to agree with it. And a lot of what the information was saying early on was that COVID was a threat and you should be concerned about it and you should change your behaviors. But as you point out, at least in the US, what we saw was a very different response based on the partisanship that you identify with. And so the reason that I'm perhaps a little bit less optimistic that the 2015 book can explain all of what we saw in COVID is because 
as you point out, the media framing is was different and continues to be different in what we might call kind of traditional mainstream media in the US and right-wing media. Right-wing media at the beginning of the pandemic and, and continuing to say that COVID is less of a threat. It's, you know, you don't necessarily need masks, you don't need vaccines. And whereas mainstream or um, legacy media was much more in line with what kind of public policy experts were saying, which was COVID was threatening, you should change your, um, your behaviors, including getting vaccinated and wearing a mask. So if, what, if anxiety is working in the way that we saw in the 2015 book, it should work across the aisle. But one of the things that is kind of interrupting that process of people becoming anxious and then looking for information is that elites were telling people very different stories about COVID very early on. So the Trump administration, including Trump himself, were telling people, don't worry about COVID. And even if you did worry, you don't need to change your behavior that much. Whereas Democratic elites and public health experts were telling a very different story. And so that connection between uncertainty and anxiety and behavior gets broken by partisanship in ways that our kind of our 2015 book finds that partisanship can get subsumed under the conditions of anxiety. But that's, you know, in a, time, a less polarized time and a time when elites were telling very similar stories about, say, public health threats. That's such an interesting way of looking at it. That sort of ties into my next question about the American experience of implementing public health measures to mitigate the effects of COVID-19. Compared to other countries around the world, the United States seems to have struggled in getting its population vaccinated. As of February 28th, only 65% of Americans were fully vaccinated, which is surprisingly the same rate of vaccination as Sri Lanka and is a lower rate than in Iran, Cambodia, and Thailand. The other thing I guess I shouldn't have found surprising but did is that vaccination rates among Americans are divided along partisan lines. An article I read by William Galston at the Brookings Institution said that 90% of Democrats and only 58% of Republicans had received a COVID vaccine as of October 2021. Mask mandates also seem to be a divisive topic in the country, with Republican politicians like Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis vocally opposing their use. I know this is a huge question, but from your research, what seems to stand out as the reason for the politicization of COVID-19 vaccines and masks in the U.S.? Okay, good question. Um, so I want to think we want to think about both kind of structural issues in the U.S. versus other places, as well as and what we call in our book project kind of pre-existing conditions um, in the U.S. versus um, other kinds of elite cues. So I'll start just briefly with the kind of pre-existing conditions in the United States that make you know, mass vaccination more challenging, say, than in other places. And the first is that we don't have a um, universal healthcare system. So healthcare access for many people is tied to employment rather than everyone having access to um, healthcare. And so they might not have a relationship with a doctor. And even though mass vaccination doesn't require having a doctor, um, we do have this kind of deeply unequal healthcare system where not everyone can seek preventative care or trust the, the healthcare system because not everyone has access to it. So that's the first thing. Um, the other thing is that federalism means that we had wide variety of 
in terms of masking policy, we had a wide variety of flavors of masking policy, um, even within states, county governments and um, state governments and even city governments had different kinds of masking mandates and policies. And those, as you said, um, were partially about the number of COVID cases in the area, but all, were mostly driven by the partisanship of the kind of leadership in the state. So that's some of the structural issues, federalism, a deeply unequal and kind of porous healthcare system. But the thing that my co-authors and I point to in the book is the politicization of masks and vaccines and all of that happened very early in the pandemic. So um, you had these very different messages coming out of the White House than you had coming out of um, Democratic politicians and the public health experts who were saying, you know, the White House was saying, well, COVID-19 is going to worse than the flu. These are the same kind of messages you are hearing on right-wing media. So it's no worse than the flu. And even if it was, you know, people should have individual choice as to whether to stay home or mask or do all those kinds of things. That kind of individualism message is very resonant on the right. Um, and those kinds of messages were very um, prominent early on, and they very they stuck. Um, so the kind of messages, right? Then again, COVID coming from the White House and the president himself, COVID nineteen is not anything to worry about. You shouldn't change your lifestyle. This is very much tied up in how people in the mass public picked up those messages. So if you trust Donald Trump, if you think that he's you know a strong leader, you might say, well, you know, he tells me not to worry about, it, so I'm not going to worry about it. Whereas if you don't trust him and you are instead turning to legacy media or mainstream media, you know, they're telling you to be concerned. That's the kind of message that you're going to pick up. And those messages never really come together. You have very different messages from the right and the left on the seriousness of COVID and the kinds of message and the kinds of um, things that people should do to mitigate and keep themselves safe. And so those that polarization on messages gets kind of glommed onto the mass public. And while we do, we do see kind of majorities of people across the political spectrum getting vaccinated and wearing masks, as you point out, the, there are big differences in terms of the probabilities um, and the percentages of Republicans versus Democrats who are vaccinated. And um, that gets even more complicated depending on where you live. Um, Ryan Ninos and Lynn Vavrick have a new forthcoming piece showing that vaccination really depends not just on your own partisanship, but on the partisanship of, of the people around you and masking also. So, you know, if people around you don't think masks are important or vaccination is important, you're less likely to do it if you're a Republican. That is not true if you're a Democrat. You're more likely to do it kind of under all circumstances if you're a Democrat. Um, one last thing, I know I've given a long answer to your question. One last thing to note, though, is that this polarization that we're seeing on health behaviors in COVID-19 is not some pre-existing um, polarization that we see on all healthcare. It's not the case that we see differences in vaccine uptake for flu vaccines or childhood vaccines by partisanship. This is something new. This is very much about the choices that were being made by the White House um, early on in the pandemic, and it is not inevitable. And I think it's really important for people to know that it is not the case that going forward, 
we're going to see massive polarization on these issues, which I think should leave us somewhat optimistic, even as it's been made the pandemic more difficult in the US in the last several years. So you you bring up polarization a lot. So political polarization in the United States uh, isn't new. It's It's been mentioned a lot in the media, especially in the last decade. Um, but the degree of polarization we've been seeing in the last few years specifically seems to be new. Um, so some commentators are even saying that America is the most divided it's been since the Civil War. Do you think that Americans' experiences with COVID-19 made American politics more polarized, or is America's response to COVID-19 an effect of existing polarization? Yes, another small, insignificant question. No, I mean, these are big, these are big questions in American politics. Okay, so um, one thing is, I think that kind of, I just participated in a a panel on political violence and and I, I get a little bit hesitant when people talk about polarization as you know, as being akin to a civil war or close to a civil war. I think we're not there. And I think we want to just be clear about that. So polarization has a couple of different forms, right? Like at the elite level, it's that, you know, the parties vote differently, you know, in Congress and in state legislatures, and that their positions on, on policy issues are different. And there's not a lot of crossover anymore. We don't have in terms of ideological crossover. There's not a lot of conservative Democrats anymore who might vote with Republicans and not a lot of liberal Republicans who vote with Democrats, et cetera. So that polarization that we've seen on the kind of on the policy level um, has been increasing over time. And, and that's pretty set. Now the Republican Party has moved further to the right in the last decade or so. And so that pulling apart of the parties on the policy level um, is, you know, that that is more intense. But I think the more troubling, the more concerning kind of polarization is what um, Shanto Iyengar and other colleagues call affective polarization. It's not simply that we have, you know, across the political spectrum, we might have different views on taxes or on affirmative action. It is that our social identities, like our race and religion and um, gender, all now line up with our partisan identity. And so again, there's fewer places where we kind of have those cross-cutting cleavages. Um, Lily Mason at Johns Hopkins points to this kind of this combination of all our social identities lining up with partisanship as particularly um, important in explaining polarization. So now we have this polarization where not only do we have policies that are different, but we also you know, have an in-group and that in-group increasingly looks like us on a variety of dimensions. We are more likely to live with people who share our same political views. And we not, in this kind of affective polarization, it's not simply that we have different policy views, it's that we also increasingly dislike people of the other party. Okay, so how does this kind of combine to think about the, the pandemic? It's, it's the polarization that we saw in the pandemic was somewhat on policy grounds, right? Should we have sh- you know, shutdowns? When should we open up the re- economy? Should we have mass mandates? Should we mandate vaccines? That's some of it. But the polarization that I think we're seeing that is more troubling, right? And thinking about how this goes on to other types of policy issues is the fact that you know refusal to wear a mask in public or 
you know, ha- you know, these kind of scenes that we've seen on airlines where people have very strong views, um, you know, almost to the, the, you know, getting kicked off of a plane about masking or vaccines or s- something else have led to more of a sense that people are divided on their basic values about whether or not they should, you know, live in the same society, right? This kind of idea that some people, you know, show their care for others through their health behaviors and some people won't do that, I think has led to an increased sense of affective polarization rather than just a disagreement on policy. I think some of that, again, is reflecting the polarization that was already there. Um, You know, we've seen polarization in Congress increase over the last 30 years. That's not new, but it's not simply that, you know, polarization on issues of policy um, led to this kind of screaming matches that people have over masking at Trader Joe's. It's that, that kind of sense of identity, the bounding up of not just our partisan identities, but all these other social identities with the health behaviors has made it so that there's not as much middle ground on thinking about, you know, how we live in a society together. Again, I'm not saying that this is so bad that we're at a point where we're, we're like getting close to political violence, but I am thinking about how this kind of affective polarization it certainly has not shrunk over the last two years. And we want to think about because po- because politics requires that we work together with people we disagree with, how does maybe the sunsetting of some of the mandates and um, so this area of political contestation over the pandemic might help um, lower some of the temperature on those particular polarized issues. But we have like lots of other things you know, climate change, school boards, all sorts of other things where we're already seeing kind of polarization coming in, in where the the place of the pandemic was. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about how identity ties into all of uh, these, I guess, political differences that we're seeing. So having chatted with you today and read some of your work, I'm really excited to read your upcoming book, Pandemic Politics in the Fall. Would you mind telling us a bit more about what we can expect to see in it? Sure, happy to. Um, So um, pandemic politics takes a broad view of the first year of the pandemic and thinking about how the the public in the United States responded to this enormous challenge of um, a health crisis. So we, uh, my co-authors and I have a set of survey data where we followed the same respondents. We have a representative sample of 3,000 Americans that we interviewed very early on in March of 2020. And we followed them six times over the course of a year. And we asked them questions on their health behaviors. We asked them questions on how they were on, you know, what kind of policies they wanted out of government, who they trusted to help keep them safe, we have lots of questions on their own economic, uh, the, the effect of the pandemic on their own economics, their views on things like immigration and border closures. Um, we have a whole chapter where we look at the racial dynamics of the pandemic because the pandemic was not simply affecting all Americans equally. It had a particularly devastating effect on um, Americans of color. 
Um, and so we take this broad view in thinking about what are the effects of the pandemic across multiple kinds of policy areas. Um, and our general argument, you know, as you might have figured out from our conversation, is that partisanship is the most consistent predictor of health behavior, health behaviors, attitudes, and responses from the American public. It is not simply a reflection of partisanship, but that is a dominant way that people understood the pandemic early on and responded. And that get that partisan um, difference gets locked in very early. Um, and then, you know, it persists over time. So even, you know, when we get to a change in administration where we have democratic leadership in the United States, you know, a lot of those same dynamics we saw early on are still around with us right now. Your research sounds really interesting, and I'm looking forward to being able to read uh, what you guys um, end up coming out with. But yeah, I'm just so amazed that uh, in the first few months of the pandemic, while everybody else was uh, staying at home and trying to figure out what hobbies to do, you guys were out uh, conducting survey research. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a little bit of a crazy time. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but um, we were, <laughs> and we weren't doing face-to-face -face surveys, just so your listeners know. We were, you know, these are all online surveys, so everyone was keeping safe and social distanced, but um, yes, we were coming up with, um, with survey questions. We got it through, and because we're academics, we had to go through our, you know, our ethics boards at our universities. We had to get funding from the National Science Foundation, um, and yeah, and then once we got the first set of results, and it was just so clear that partisanship was um, such a big determinant, we then were, we were very clear with each other as co-authors that we wanted to keep going, and we wanted to just see what happened. Um, and so we just kept applying for more grant money, and, you know, we're very fortunate to get some to be able to follow these same respondents over time, which I think is one of the advantages that our data have is that we can actually see that this isn't just simply that people stopped responding to our study because of, you know, of their political views. It, it really is the kind of individual level that we can follow the same folks over time. Um, and it gives really in, important insight onto how ordinary Americans were dealing with this very massive change in their lifestyle. Yeah, that's really fantastic. I'll, I'll have to make sure I look for a copy in the fall. Um, but uh, to, to end this episode on a bit of a lighter note, we've finally entered the third year of the COVID pandemic and the crisis seems to be winding down. So when we look to the future of American politics, do you also think we've seen the worst of polarization? Well, I'm not sure that's going to end us on a light note. Um, <laughs> so um, I don't think we've seen the last of polarization. I think, you know, how we think about how polarization I don't think it winds down. I think the parties in the US are far apart on real issues that affect people's lives. Um, and, and those are real policy differences. And it's also the case that increasingly our social lives are more segregated by partisanship, but, all, but also all sorts of other um, you know, social uh, identities. But I do think as the, part, as the pandemic winds down, as we're able to go back to do some face-to-face -face kinds of activities more safely, as people feel more comfortable going back into kind of society writ large, there are opportunities for people to work together, to 
hear each other's stories, to just simply understand that we're, you know, there's a lot that unites people. Um, but I anticipate that we'll have a very um, dramatic um, uh, presidential campaign in 2024, particularly if Donald Trump is running. Um, and and while I, I think structures and, and individual decisions matter, leadership matters too. And so to the extent that we, we have, you know, politicians who strive to get their coalitions by drama and dividing people, then polarization isn't going to go away. But to the extent that we have kind of messages and coalition building that can go across different groups, I think um, there's more chance that people, you know, polarization will get tamped down. And there's going to be all sorts of other issues that come up on the agenda that don't have a clear partisan bent. So in the United States right now, there's massive support for, you know, you sending foreign aid to Ukraine. There, and there's no partisan split on that. And so there will be issues where people can see, you know, their partisan opposite as the same as them. And that will help as well. And it might open up the space to do some more kind of working together. I mean, I think polarization is, is here. Um, I think part of this is a society that is learning how, what a multiracial democracy has to be. And that's difficult. Demographic change is very difficult for people to kind of give up control over political life. Um, and so that's a challenge that the United States is going to face into the future, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be quite as, you know, affectively polarized as we've seen in the last two decades or so. I think there's space to work together, and I think giving space for people to actually face-to-face -face work together is part of that, and the kind of winding down of the pandemic might help in that, in that way. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Guderian, for joining me today and helping to shed some light on how politics has shaped America's COVID-19 experience. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out the rest of The Voice Above's second season on your preferred streaming platform. As always, subscribe or follow Voice Above on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to get a notification when our next episode airs in mid-April. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.